Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, starting in verse 15, going to verse 25 of Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, if you throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. If you forgot your Bible, didn't bring a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, for sure, raise your hand, grab one of these as our gift to you, and take it home. But for now, grab a copy of God's Word and open to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be digging into, uh, it's really uh, one of the most difficult parts of the book of Galatians. It's, it's deep theologically. There's some, there's some hard things to figure out here. So we're, we're going to go deep a little bit this morning, right? If, if we start to get lost, I'll think of a story, a funny story about my love for cats, all right? So if, if I start talking about me as a kid and a frozen cat and me with a shovel, all right, it means that you look lost or I'm completely lost, all right? And that'll kind of maybe bring us back, but we're, we're ready to dig in. Here's, here's the thing I love about what we do here as a church, that, that we just love to dig into God's Word. And we're not going to jump past the verses that are hard. I mean, I don't get that. Let's just skip it. No, we want to dig into God's Word because there's something for us this morning. And what we've been doing in this series in Galatians, we've been just tracking through how is it that we can be made right with a holy God? How do we have His love and acceptance, those things that we, we so long for and desire? The only way for it to happen is for us to be perfect. We, we would need to keep all of God's laws perfectly. God is a holy God, completely holy and perfect for us to be accepted, to be in his presence. We would have to be the same. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then we know real quickly, you figure this out, man, that's impossible. I can't do that. And, and religion comes in and religion says, no, you have to. This is the way. Work harder, try harder, strive more, do everything you can, and hopefully you can achieve this perfection to be right with God. And that's what's going on in this church in Galatia and why Paul's writing this letter. Because he says, no. But living that way, believing that lie, it's a huge mistake. You're putting yourself in a prison that you can never get out of. Because the truth is this, the truth is that God's love and acceptance comes from what God has done for sinners, not what sinners can do for God. I mean, that's the gospel, that's what grace is. God has done for us what we could never do for him. And the gospel says that, that the God who makes the demands is the one who met the demands. And so Jesus comes and lives the perfect life that none of us could ever live. He dies the death that we should have died in our place, taking our punishment as our substitution for God's wrath to be poured out on Jesus. All justice meets on the cross, but so does all love and grace because Jesus took our place. And then he rose again from the grave so that we could be made new, so that we could come before a holy God, and so that we could, we could have righteousness, his righteousness. And so all of that, and Paul's been, been talking, going, this is it, it's only by grace, it's by grace alone, it's not by working hard, it's by grace alone. Then it comes to this logical question where, where if you're like, hey, okay, I get it, I'm a follower of Christ now. I'm saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, what he did for me, but then what do I do with all the rules of Scripture? Like, like, do I not have to strive to live righteously? Like, if it's all grace, then, then what good is the law of God then? I mean, it's a great question, and Paul sees that coming as he's writing this letter. If you have Galatians 3 open, look, he, he asks it in verse 19. He says, why then the law? 
I mean, if God accepts us because of Jesus Christ living in us, because he gave his life for us in our place, and Jesus did that precisely because we can't keep the law, then what's the whole purpose of the law? Why all the rules? It's a great question. And by answering this question, what do we do? We're going to take something that's this, this kind of high theology and bring it right down onto the ground for us. Because what we're asking is, well, how do I then live this life? How do I treat my spouse? What do I spend my money on? What corners can I cut in life? And how do I raise my kids? Or what does the Christian life look like if it's all grace? What about the law, Paul? And some have, have come and say, to find answers for that question, and there's two mistakes we can make, and here are two errors that people have come out trying to answer this question. The first one is antinomianism. Big word, right? Antinomianism. What's that mean? It means this. If it's all grace, if, if salvation is all grace, then we're completely released totally from even having to live a righteous life. The law is basically useless. Now, now, when I say law, when Paul's talking about the law all through Galatians, he's talking to Jews who would have been following the Old Testament. So he'd be talking about the, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, talking about the law of Moses. But, but I would include this when Paul's writing this. He would also be including any of God's laws all the way through the New Testament. All the imperatives we read the New Testament were, were called to do this. It also would include not, not just all those laws, but in the Old Testament, wrapped up in the law are the ceremonial laws and the moral laws. So the ceremonial laws, those are the sacrifices, the, the food restrictions, the clothing restrictions, the ceremonial washings, and, and all of these ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. Because when Christ came, it says that Christ was the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So this whole system of ceremony and of religion that was set up in the Old Testament, all these ceremonial laws, all pointing us to what was coming, all a shadow of Jesus Christ that he, as he was coming to be the ultimate sacrifice. So we don't need to, we, we recognize that through Christ, the ceremonial laws no longer apply. Christ died once for all of those. No more sacrificing. Bacon and lobster are back on the menu, all right? Okay. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, but there's also the moral law. We think moral law, you can think the, the ten big ones, right? The ten commandments and no murdering, no lying, no stealing, no, no being unfaithful in your marriage. It, it would include all the moral laws. It would include all the appearance of the New Testament. And listen, those are in play forever because those display the character of God. And someone who's falling after antinomianism, they would say, no, 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 if I'm made right with God by faith, saved by grace through faith, not by what I do, then I never have to be concerned of even the moral laws. It doesn't matter if I live righteously. Like, let's just party on, do whatever I want. I mean, I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to be a Pharisee, so don't, don't, don't judge me, bro. Like, don't tell me what I need to do, and I can just live however I want, and I'm going to get to heaven. It's a false view. We're going to see that this morning. This idea we don't have to worry about actually living for Christ. Now, the opposite of that view, just as wrong, but the opposite is something that we would call legalism. Legalism says this, to be accepted before God, you have to do everything right. 
If you want God's acceptance, this is what was going on in the Galatian church. This is what Paul was writing to fight against. He said, no, no, no. Grace is the root of the gospel. But then a relationship with God is the fruit of the gospel. And religion is the enemy of the gospel. And so what have we learned so far as we've been tracking through Galatians that through Christ, through faith, because of his grace, when we repent, when we give our lives and trust fully in Christ, we are justified, right? We're declared righteous. We're justified just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. That's how God now sees you through Christ. And then because of that, now what's happening, we're being sanctified. God's changing us through the power of his spirit in us as we follow him in relationship with him. We're being sanctified, changed to be more like him. And so here we are as Christians. We're walking on this narrow road of the gospel. And on either side of the road, you've got these ditches to fall off into if you're not in the gospel. And the one side is I can just do whatever I want and who cares? Live life, be happy and do whatever you want. That's a ditch you're falling off here, over here. The other side, you'd fall off if you fall off the gospel is into this ditch of legalism that just says, listen, you're, you're accepted by God by what you do for God. And God won't love you or accept you, so you better do more, strive more, work harder. Both ditches are anti-gospel. To live your life fully in one ditch or the other would show that you don't know the gospel. You don't know Jesus Christ. So this morning, we, we need to answer this question. We need to figure out what, what then is the law? What part does the law of God have to do in my life? So if you're taking notes, here's our first point. We have two points this morning. Here's the first one. It's always been about grace. It's always been about grace. It, it's not a new idea. And Paul, again, he goes all the way back to God's promises to Abraham. And Paul says this, this whole idea of Jesus plus nothing, it, it, this whole idea of Jesus plus nothing to be accepted, to be loved by God, it's not new. It was all the way from the beginning. And so verse 15, he says, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, which is great because last time, remember, he called us doughheads. So this is good if you're with us last Sunday. He says, he calls brothers and sisters, to give a human example, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. What's, what are you talking about here, Paul? He's talking about covenants, this, this covenant, a covenant's a, an agreement between two parties. It's, it's drawn up in this legal language, and, and both parties are under the rule of that contract. It can't be broken. It's binding. And we're going to read here, there are two covenants Paul's going to talk about. The first one, verse 16, he's going to talk about the covenant given to Abraham. Verse 16 says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul could say, hey, there was this first covenant that God made with his people. It began with Abraham, just a regular dude, a pagan in this land of Canaan, just wandering around. God chooses him, and he promises him, hey, you're going to be blessed. I'm going to give you a land and a people. But this part is mind-blowing. This whole idea is this, that this, the promises of grace, this promise of Jesus began all the way in the beginning. 
The, the promise to Abraham wasn't so much, hey, you're going to have a big family. It's, it's this idea, not, not plural, all your kids, but the promise will be fulfilled in one of your descendants, Jesus Christ, that through him, from Abraham's family, would come the Messiah who all the world would be blessed. And this promise, this covenant God makes with Abraham, completely dependent based on God. Abraham had nothing to do with this covenant. All Abraham did was believe, and this was his. The promise was his, all based on God. And when you read the story of Abraham, you read about him in Genesis, he's not always an upstanding guy. But he, he was chosen as a pagan. I mean, even after the promises, he, he, he lies. He, you know the story where he goes in and, and there's this Egyptian king who sees him with his wife, Sarah. And the Egyptian king goes, man, you're, that, that, that lady, she's pretty hot. Who is she? And Abraham was worried that if I say she's my wife, he'll kill me to take her. So he goes, uh, she's my sister. You, you can have her. Right? That, that's, that's a tough, like, listen, listen, if you forget Mother's Day, you may hear about it for a little while, all right? If you say to a guy, hey, it's, have my wife, that, you'll hear about it for a long time, all right? And so Abraham, not really this, always this upstanding guy. Listen, it was grace since the beginning. God's intention all along was to save us, not by the law, but by his grace, by the gift of his son. It's not new, Paul says. The gospel goes all the way back to Abraham. So there's this promise covenant. Now he says there's a second covenant. Look at verse 17. And he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. See, here comes the second covenant, 430 years later. The law is given to Moses and to God's people. And, and what Paul's saying is, listen, I want to contrast these for you so you understand that one's a promise covenant, the other's a law covenant. It's a bit like this. If I were to say to you, hey, I've got 100 bucks in my pocket, and it's yours. You just have to believe I have it and come and get it. Like that, that's a promise. Now, if I were to say, I've got a hundred bucks in my pocket, if you want it, please come by my house afterwards and weed my lawn for me. And then you get, that, that's a law covenant, right? You earn it the one way, you just come and receive it the other way, and he's contrasting these two. And in a promise covenant, it all depends on the one giving the promise. It all depends on me. It depends on me to have the hundred dollars. But when you have a law covenant, it depends on both of us. To, to receive that, that reward of that covenant, you have to follow all the conditions. And Paul's saying, hey, there was this promised covenant given. It was given first. The law came second, and you can't change the first covenant because the second one came. Don't mess up the order, he says. Grace first, then obedience. Don't go back and rewrite. Don't try to flip them around now. It's grace first, then obedience. Don't mess up. Listen, we can't mess up that order in our lives. It's grace first, then obedience. When you see this in how God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, right? Where they're, they're slaves, they're in bondage. A picture of us in bondage to our sin and ourself. And what did God do? God rescued them out of Egypt. Did they need to do anything? No, they just walked out. They didn't have to fight the Egyptians. In fact, as they left, remember the story, as they leave, they just were like giving them gold and silver as they're going. 
They come to the Red Sea. Do they swim across? No, no. God says, hey, hey, just be still, and you're going to see that I'm God. God parts the sea. They walk across. Everybody walks across. Not not those with greater faith. Not not those who can walk better. No swimming required. It's all grace. And it's after God saves them. Listen, it's after that that Moses goes up onto the mountain and the law is given. And that order is important. Grace first, then the law. Accepted and loved by God, changed by him, and then following after him in sanctification. It, was, it happened first. It's so important to keep that order right. Now, Paul also says this in verse 19. The second half of verse 19, he talks about this covenant, this promise. He said it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That's confusing. And some commentaries, they'll say it this way. They'll say that the law was given from an angel through Moses to the people. But the law of grace was given directly from God to us. There's, nobody had to come in between. Why is that? Because it says God is one. So who was the intermediary? Who was the mediator for us? Jesus Christ was It's through him that we have access to the Father. So he says, listen, here's this this law and this grace. Don't mess up the order. Justification, then sanctification. Rescue, then the law. God didn't show up in Egypt and say, hey, Egyptian slaves, here are my Ten Commandments. Obey them, and we're out of here. We love your law. We'll do it perfectly. Then you'll rescue us. No, no, no. He says, listen, salvation is by grace alone. He He rescues and redeems his people. And now that you've been saved, he says, now here's the relationship we can live together. Here's the law. I mean, this is how we can say it. If you, if you think of the, the whole Exodus narrative, you can say this. If you're a follower of Christ, you could say, I was enslaved in bondage. I was rescued by the mighty arm of God. I did nothing. And then God showed up and showed me how to live out my salvation by grace. I haven't reached the promised land yet. I haven't got to glorification yet. And I'm going to trip and fall along the way. I'm going to make many mistakes living out this Christian life. But but God's provided a way for me even to deal with those mistakes, even to deal with that sin that there's sacrifice being made. And God shows that at first with Moses with the sacrificial system. But we now have the ultimate sacrifice of Christ in that order. Grace, then obedience. Red Sea, then Mount Sinai. Here's the thing. What will keep most people from from God? What will keep most people from receiving his grace? It's not sin. What will keep most people is working harder. Not our failures, but our works. I'm going to strive harder. I'm going to seek after it this way. And God says, listen, stop trying to earn your way. You never can earn it. The standard is perfection. Good luck with that. Good luck battling the entire Egyptian army as a slave in chains. Good luck swimming across the Red Sea. It's not happening. You're going to die trying to do it. Or or you can turn to Christ and be rescued. Then the question can be asked, okay, then then I get it that, that, that it's all grace. The law comes second, but then what do I do with the law? If you're taking notes, here's our second point. What's the purpose of the law? The law leads me to Jesus. The law will lead me to Jesus. 
If the, the promise is given, if it's by grace, why give the law? And, and there's, a, there's a danger here in messing this up. There's, there's a danger where, where in church world we have this idea of, yeah, yeah, I get it that God got me in, but now it's by my grueling effort that I stay in the family. And I, I needed God a lot at the beginning of this whole journey. I don't so much need him now. Like, 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 Jesus, I couldn't have done what you did, but now I don't need you as much. Now that I've been set free, you can kind of sit down. I'll take it from here. And this, this idea then that Christian growth is that it's when we need Jesus less and less and less and less. It's a lie. Listen, what scripture is saying here, what verse 19, it says this, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. The, the law is there to show us our deep need for Jesus. It added because of our transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. So it's, the law is given to us to point us to Jesus so that we start to recognize that Christian growth doesn't become I need Jesus less, but it reveals in my heart, like Paul said in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Praise God, the answer is in Jesus. That's the, the law. The law shows us our, our need of Jesus. Verse 19 says, because of transgression, and that word transgression, it means stepping over the boundary, crossing over the line. And what happens is the law comes in, the law removes our ignorance of where those lines are. God's law shines a light. So uh, for a while, it was kind of hazy. And, and yeah, we've been created in God's image. Everyone has eternity imprinted in their hearts, Scripture says. So we have an idea of what God's moral law would be, but it's really fuzzy for us. Until God goes, here's the law. Let me make it clear. And until it's clear, we, we don't know where to go. Until it's clear, I, I think of it this way. Think about babies. Babies are unbelievably Selfish, right? Are they not like, what do, they, what do babies do? I'm serious, I love babies. Babies are cute, but right? A baby will wake up in the middle of the night, not give a rip about how little sleep mom and dad have had, and start screaming because they're hungry. Right? So selfish. Now, now, do we get upset about that? We're like, man, what a ridiculous baby. That is awful. <laughs> I'm going to talk to those parents. They, they got to take parenting classes because that baby should wake up and go, I'm hungry, but you know what? Mom and dad are tired. I'll just wait. Till they, you know, babies don't do that, and we don't hold them kind of with that, that kind of response. But listen, listen, what happens as they grow? What happens if your husband wakes up at 2 a.m. and starts crying that he's hungry, right? <laughs> like, he does that. Okay, it's not right, okay? Why? Because as you grow, you start to learn the boundaries of life. Like, this is okay, this is not okay. You begin to learn, and that's the law. It reveals God's standards. It reveals our sinfulness. It's like this mirror that's, that's held up to our lives. It, it exposes our hearts. But here's the problem with the law. That's all it can do. It's like, it's like going to the hospital, and the MRI may show where the problems are in your body, but that, that big machine's not going to cure you. And that's the law. The law is going to be able to reveal the sin, but it can't cure it. The, the function of the law is not providing salvation, but to convince us of our need for it. In fact, Paul goes on, verse 21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? 
Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. So so sin reveals for us our need of salvation. It it shows us the fact that we're trapped, that we're locked in. It's it's this idea of of this this striving that we have in our life. It's the trap that that holds a, a child trapped in striving in athletics or in academics, hoping that his parents will be proud of him. It it imprisons the spouse trying so hard to be be beautiful, to be admirable. It imprisons that person straining so hard to pat themselves on the back for what they've accomplished in business or in their spiritual life. The law imprisons us. It imprisons us in our own incapacities, in our own inabilities, in our own insecurities. And it's it's this whole idea of I can make life on my own. But when we try that, we eventually recognize I'm trapped in this prison I can't get out of. I need to be set free. Paul goes on, not only is it it to reveal our hearts, not only is it a prison for us, verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Jesus Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It says the law was our guardian. The word here, it's it's talking about a a tutor, a pedagogue. When you were in this time uh, where Paul's writing, there would be one of the slaves in your household, one of the servants would be the teacher for the kids, and they were a disciplinarian. They would teach them everything they need to know, getting them ready for life. And and so this idea is the law is this disciplinarian, this taskmaster, this this one saying, hey, you're never going to measure up. You're never going to amount to anything. It's constantly shouting. The law is constantly, you're not going to make it. How many of us have heard that voice? Maybe you hear it from just deep within your own heart. Maybe it's come through your parents. Maybe you've heard it from your siblings. Maybe you've heard it from a church. And that, that, that nagging feeling of striving harder and harder to be someone can always be traced back to a voice of law. But listen, listen, God's, God's word says this, that voice of God's law was to point you to the freedom you can have in Jesus Christ. Verse 25 says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew or Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He's saying, listen, you've been set free because of Jesus, because of who Christ is in you. You've been baptized to him. You've been connected with Christ. Now you are set free and you're no longer a slave. You're now a son or a daughter. You're an heir to this promise. And, And being an heir changes everything. You're not sitting under a contract of law anymore. No, no. here's what the idea is. Now when you sit there, what, what the lawyer's doing isn't reading a contract to you. He's reading the will to you. You're 
You're not working like an employee anymore. You're not working for wages. You just sit there as the will is being read, that, that will that is full of everything that's yours, of things you didn't earn, but, but the one who left the will earned it for you. And how crazy would it be for you to sit as the will's being read and you're given everything, all the treasures that you get up and say, hey, thanks for that, but I gotta go get a job and see if I can work for what was just given to me. The whole idea of the will is that you don't deserve it because of your work. It's not because of you at all. Why is it? It's because, listen, you're, you're no longer slave or free or Greek or Jew. What are you? You're now an heir to the promise. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. You have all the rights and privileges of royalty. Amen. Amen. And the law, what it does is it points to the fact of this, that you have no hope outside of Jesus Christ to have this. And, and Satan wants us to believe this, that we have to prove ourselves by the law. We gotta prove ourselves holy by obeying the law. And God says, no, no, I gave you the law to prove that you weren't holy. And the law just points out your sick heart. Now you have to run to where there's healing, to the physician. You've been set free now, and you get to come to the cross and be made new and now walk in this new healed life. So then what good is the law if it pointed us to Christ for salvation? If, that's, if that was the point of the law to show us that we couldn't get to God except through Christ, if that was the purpose of it, then maybe you're sitting here going, okay, that's great for those who don't know Christ, who haven't given their lives to Christ. What about me? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What good's the law for me now? Listen, the same thing. It continues to drive you to Jesus Christ. I mean, you, yourself, you, you're set free, but we are, we are so prone to setting up all these self-rescue programs. We're so prone to, to self-righteousness and to pride, and we need the law to continue to reveal our need every day for Jesus. We need the law to chip away at our self-righteousness. Because here's the thing, here's what I believe. I believe in this room today that legalism, how we normally think of legalism, isn't a problem for most of you. There's, there's, I'm sure there's nobody sitting here right now saying, how can that guy get up there and preach without a tie on? Right? That's just not our deal, right? That's, that's not where we are as a church. We, that's not something, so when you say legalism, that's not what I'm talking about. But we are living under the law rather than grace when what we do when we're trying to deal with our wounds, with our sins, with things from our past, with, with our pride, is that we seek saviors outside of Jesus Christ. We start to say things like, man, if my family was better, I would be okay. If my spouse was more like this, if only I had fill in the blank. And in this, this self-driven act of I rescue myself, what happens is it begins to drive us deeper into this law, this law that takes our desires, where we begin to say not just I want this, and I'm talking about good things too. We want good things. I want a good family. I want good health. I, I want to follow Christ with my whole life. But we take these things, these good things, and we move from them being wants to demands. We begin to live under law and say, not only do I just want this type of family, I demand it. 
Not only do I want this relationship, I demand, not only do I just want this kind of health, I demand this health. Not only do I want these things, I demand them. I need to have them. And if, if I don't have them, I can't be whole. <coughs> what happens, we begin to suck the life out of our stuff, out of the people around us, trying to get all this stuff to meet these demands, and eventually we find ourselves crushed because we can't achieve them. The Bible would call them idols. My question this morning is this, where do you find yourself living under the law of an idol? Where have you set up this law in your heart where you fight this battle and your life has moved from desire to demand? What's captivated your heart today? What do you have set up as your savior for life? I mean, is it your family? Is it a, a, a relationship that needs to be restored? Is it, is it your marriage? Is, is it your health? Is it your work? Is it your stuff? Is it your image? Your looks, your ideas? What, what is it that you say, and this has gone from just a desire to a demand, and, and I, I need this. If I don't have this, I don't feel whole and new. And what, is, what, what is the sin that you run to to numb that pain? What's your functional savior if it's not Jesus? Because listen, you know you have an understanding of the gospel. You know you grasp grace and the cross when, when your idols, when I was just talking about right there, when your idols in sin, they horrify you. But they also cause you to run to the cross. And you find yourself living in the joy and the freedom of forgiveness. You, you understand the gospel and you have a conscious understanding of your sin and your idols. And you're not crippled by them because you understand the promise of God that liberates us from the curse of the law. Listen, you're not understanding the gospel and grace if you're falling off on one side of the road of the gospel into one ditch or the other. Listen, if your sins don't deeply trouble you, you don't get the gospel. If the, if the idols in your heart, if you're like okay with them being, they're like, well, that's all right, it's not a big deal. Listen, you're not understanding the gospel. Or on the flip side, if you see your sin and it causes you to run away from God in shame, you're not getting the gospel. Our sins should drive us to the cross of Christ where full payment was made for them. So what do we do then? If you find yourself in either ditch, what's the answer? If you, if you don't care about righteousness, if you don't care about living for Christ, you don't care that you've been set free to live a new life in relationship with Jesus, the answer is not to just stay there. The answer is to run to the cross. If you're fearful of revealing sin because you're, you're scared, but if this is found out, then I won't be loved or accepted by God. You need to run to the cross. The answer for both is grace. What do I mean when I say that? As the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, I love this verse. Romans 8.1 says this. It says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a, it's a declarative statement. 
Right? This is not a, hey, you can be sprung from jail, but you still got to come back. Like you, You're sprung from jail, but you got to live your life in a halfway house. You got to report to the probation officer. No, you're free. It says it is now. Now there's therefore now no condemnation. So what do we do? How do we respond this morning? And what's a way to respond to this news? Listen, if you don't know Jesus, the way you respond this morning is coming to the cross. It's in repentance. It's saying, I have been striving after all these things, hoping that I will be made right and whole. But I recognize it's only Christ, that, that grace for me is had when I just turn and say, help me, Jesus. If, if you do know Christ this morning and you're stuck striving for, demanding things in your life, saying, if I have this, if this is perfect, then I'll be okay. What's your response? Your response is to bring that to the cross and say, Jesus, I give this to you. I don't demand this anymore because my hope and my wholeness is not found in that, it's found in you. As the testimony said, as Justin said, looking for, for acceptance, looking for hope in belonging and discovering that it's not in running around and having the perfect family or, or belonging somewhere, his hope was found in knowing that his heavenly father would never leave him or forsake him, that he belongs in Christ. So, so what's your response this morning? Your response is to respond to grace and to bring it to the cross. And lastly, maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, Kai, I'm living in victory right now, praise Jesus. I'm pursuing Christ every day. I get my sin, I'm bringing it to the cross. How do I respond? I, I don't feel like there's anything pressing on me this morning. You respond by celebrating this grace. You can only say that because of God's spirit in you, because of the amazing grace of God in your life. And so this morning, let's respond to this amazing grace. Would you stand with me as I pray? <laughs> Heavenly Father, this morning we want to respond to your grace. Lord God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, who, who's, who's heard about you but not really following after you, and like, ah, doesn't know what to do, then Lord, I pray this morning they would hear the clear hope of the gospel and that the answer is simple. The answer this morning is saying that I'm a sinner deeply in need of a savior. And I believe in you, Lord Jesus. I believe that you came as the perfect sacrifice. You died in my place. You've been raised again from the dead that I now can be set free. And I wanna follow that. I want that this morning. And I pray that, that those here, Lord, that they would respond in that way. Father, for those who are followers of Christ already, God, I pray that if there are sins or idols that have been, been just neglected and not pursued after and, and excused. And, and while it's not that bad, Lord God, I pray this morning that because of your grace, God, not because of the weight of guilt or shame, because of your grace, we could bring those to the cross and be set free. No longer grabbing a hold of these things. Lord God, it's painful to release them. It feels like death because we think they bring us life. God, would you take them from our hands this morning and point us to where our hope is that we could live in the joy and freedom of forgiveness today. And Lord God, may all of us, in response to your grace, celebrate. We'd celebrate. We'd sing of it this morning. And we recognize that when we're thousands of years into eternity, we'll still be singing about this amazing grace. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.